Job 32 and 33 tonight. So these three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, was aroused against Job. His wrath was aroused because he justified himself rather than God. Also against his three friends his wrath was aroused because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. Now because they were years older than he, Elihu had waited to speak to Job. When Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, his wrath was aroused. So Elihu, the son of Barakal, the Buzite, answered and said, I am young in years, and you are very old. Therefore I was afraid and dared not declare my opinion to you. I said, Age should speak, and multitude of years should teach wisdom. But there is a spirit in man, and the breath of the Almighty gives him understanding. Great men are not always wise, nor do the aged always understand justice. Therefore I say, Listen to me, I also will declare my opinion. Indeed, I waited for your words. I listened to your reasonings while you searched out what to say. I paid close attention to you, and surely not one of you convinced Job or answered his words. Lest you say, we have found wisdom, God will vanquish him, not man. Now he has not directed his words against me, so I will not answer him with your words. They are dismayed and answer no more. Words escape them. And I have waited because they did not speak, because they stood still and answered no more. I also will declare my part. I too will declare my opinion. For I am full of words. The spirit within me compels me. Indeed, my belly is like wine that has no vent. It is ready to burst like new wineskins. I will speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. Let me not, I pray, show partiality to anyone, nor let me flatter any man. For I do not know how to flatter, else my Maker would soon take me away. Let's ask God's blessing on our study. Our Father and our God, we are grateful for your mercy to us and for the opportunity to study the Scriptures we're grateful also for the promise of the Spirit of Christ Jesus to give us understanding. and We ask that you will lead us rightly tonight so that we may give honor to you and may learn obedience to your ways. Be gracious to us in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. So here in chapter 32, we'll be talking about 32 and 33. Here in chapter 32, we have the beginning of the speech of Elihu. And his speech is long. It begins here in chapter 32 and goes all the way through chapter 37. It's also very interesting that uh, the scriptures do not, the book of Job does not mention Elihu before this. His name does not appear with the names of the other three friends in chapter 2. And we know nothing about him. Uh, we do not know, even know until now that he was present with Job and his friends through this uh, whole conversation, or at least through a good part of this conversation. And when he is finished speaking at the end of chapter 37, he disappears. 
and we never hear of him again. In chapter 42, the three friends are mentioned again, but not Elihu. So he he comes and goes, he gives a speech, and that's all we know uh, of him. And yet, it's clear from the way that Elihu speaks here, especially in uh, this chapter, but also later on, that he had been with them at least long enough to understand the arguments of both sides. He understood what the friends were saying, and he understood also what Job was saying. And in fact, his speech is, I think, extremely important. His speech is important because it's Elihu, actually, who grasps the truth of the matter. His, uh, the three friends have erred, and he will speak sharply to them because of their error. But Job has also erred, and he will speak sharply also to Job because of Job's error. Elihu has, is the one who has wisdom here. And Elihu actually, I think, prepares the way for God to speak in chapters 38 and following. Now there are uh, three markers in this speech that divide the speech up into uh, four parts. So we have chapters 32 and 33, which we're looking at tonight. And then we have chapter 34, in which Elihu speaks to the three friends of Job. And you can see that if you look at verse 2 of that chapter. You see the marker, first of all, the division in 34 verse 1. Elihu further answered and said, And then, hear my words, you wise men. Notice the plural. Give ear to me, you who have knowledge. And then uh, verse 5, For Job has said, I am righteous, but God has taken away my justice. So he's talking to the three friends in chapter 34. In chapter 35, we have another marker. Moreover, Elihu answered and said, and then again, an indication that now he's turning to Job, Verse 2, do you, singular this time, think this is right? Do you say, my righteousness is more than God's? So chapter 35 is talking to Job. And then another marker in chapter 36. Elihu also proceeded and said, bear with me a little and I will show you singular again. So this is also speaking to Job. So 35, 36, and 37 are all to Job, but 34 is to the three friends. And then as we'll see, as we work through chapters 32 and 33, we have first this introductory section in verses 1 to uh, 5. And then Job talks to the friends in verses 6 to the end of the chapter, 30, uh, 22. And then in 33, he talks to Job. And then he says it in verse 1 of 33, but please, Job, hear my speech and listen to my words. So we've got three parts in these two chapters we're looking at tonight. Now, we are given here in the chapter, at the beginning of the chapters, some information about Elihu. First of all, he was the son of Barakel. Now, Barakel is uh, a name that appears only here. We know nothing about him, therefore, besides 
that he was the father of Elihu. He was, uh, Barakel was a Boozite, and Booz, or Buzz, as we sometimes say, was a son of Nahor, the brother of Abraham. So Booz was a nephew of Abraham and a cousin of Lot. Lot was the son of another brother of Abraham, Haran. So this uh, places Elihu in that family of Abraham, that uh, genealogy that includes also Abraham. And we're told he was of the family of Ram, and commentators usually take this to mean Aram, who was also of that same family. So this puts uh, Elihu into that family of Abraham, and in a general way, anyway, in the time of the patriarchs, I think. Not necessarily at the same time as Abraham, but perhaps several generations later. That's one thing, then, that we find out about him. We find out also that he was younger than any of the three friends. He says it himself in verse 6, I'm young in years and you are very old. And verse 4 as well tells us, we, because they were older than he, Elihu had waited to speak to Job. He was, thirdly, angry. It's uh, the thing that's emphasized most about Elihu, in fact, in this introduction. Three times you read about his anger. Verse 2, then the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barakel, was aroused against Job. So he was angry with Job at first. And then verse 3, also against his three friends, his wrath was aroused. So he was angry with the three friends. He was angry with everybody. And then again in verse 5, when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, his wrath was aroused. So he was an angry man. And then in the fourth place, we are told the reasons for his anger. And these are interesting. We read that he was angry with Job, verse 2, because Job justified himself rather than God. And we'll talk about that when we get to chapter 33. That's kind of going to be our uh, driving force as we look at what he has to say in chapter 33. And he was angry with the friends because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. So let's begin with that. They had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. And I think what he means that is that they had never in all their attempts to speak, and remember there were at least uh, eight attempts by these three friends to um, uh, persuade Job of their position, and they all basically agreed. They all were basically making the same point. They had made eight attempts then to persuade Job, and they had failed. They had not convinced him. And they had not convinced him, Elihu is persuaded, because they had not really answered him. They had found no answer. They had their explanation for Job's suffering, that it was due to sin that Job had committed. And when Job 
argued against them and said, no, I have not sinned. That's not the explanation for my suffering. They really could do nothing more than repeat what they had said before. They had begun with Job by making no specific accusations. In fact, they had not even said directly to Job in their earlier speeches that he had sinned. They just talked about the the judgment of God on sinners and all the accusations of sin were implied in their speeches. And when they finally did actually accuse him of sin, they were very wide of the mark. They accused him of oppressing the poor or neglecting the poor in an area of his life where Job says, I was exemplary. We saw that last week. So the friends had not found an answer to Job, and yet they had condemned him, and they insisted on continuing to condemn him. They hadn't changed their minds in spite of all that Job had said in his defense. So in in light of that, then, let's look at what Elihu then says to the friends in verses 6 and following of the chapter. He begins by explaining his silence up to this point. It was simply due to the fact that he was younger than they, and that out of respect for their greater age, he thought they should have the first opportunity to speak. He expected them to be wiser than he, and he thought that they should have the answer to Job, and it would not be necessary even, perhaps, for him to speak. But then he says in verse 8, Uh, but God has given me some understanding. I thought that you would have understanding because of your greater age, but God has given me some understanding. There is a spirit in man, and the breath of the Almighty gives him understanding. There are some commentators who take this to mean that Elihu was uh, speaking prophetically, that he was inspired in his speeches. I do not think that that is true myself. I don't think he was speaking under inspiration, though he spoke correctly and wisely when he did speak. Great men, he says, are not always wise, nor do the aged always understand justice. And notice how, again, he does not directly accuse the friends, but it's certainly plainly implied that they were not they had not been wise and had not understood justice in their accusations against Job. And so he says, verse 10, listen to me. I've listened to you now. I've paid very close attention to what you were saying, verse 11. I uh, have seen too that in all of this uh, effort to convince Job, you failed completely, you haven't answered his words, and don't therefore, verse 13, say, we have found wisdom, God will vanquish him, not man. That is, don't now rest on your laurels saying, we've spoken wisdom, we've spoken truth, but we haven't been able to persuade Job, God will have to take care of this, there's nothing more we can do. And finally, in verse 14, in this part of his speech, uh, I don't have your disadvantages. Job has not directed his words against me. 
I've not spoken up to this point. I've not indicated any agreement with what you've been saying to me. Job hasn't been answering me when he's uh, answered you. And so I don't have to take your position. I don't have to try to excuse myself from the kinds of things you have been saying. I don't have to explain away why I'm uh, different than the rest of you. I've been silent up to this point. I'm not going to answer him with your words. I have something different to say to Job than you had to say. And then he reviews the situation again in verses 15 and 16. They are dismayed and answer no more. Words escape them. I've waited because they did not speak. I've given you time now after Job's last speech to speak again if you feel you should. But you've stood still and you answer no more. So now I'm going to talk. Verse 17. And I'm full of words, he says. I'm so full of words like, that I'm like a, a wineskin full of new wine fermenting. And I'm about to burst with the words that are filling me. I will speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. And I won't show partiality to anyone. And I won't flatter anyone. I don't know how to flatter. And if I did, my maker would judge me for that. So he doesn't really hear in chapter 32 in his first words to the friends of Job say why they were wrong. He just says they were wrong. You were wrong. It's not until later that he begins to explain to them why they were wrong. But here he explains really the thrust of his speech is he's explaining why he is going to speak. They have not been answering Job properly. He, therefore, will reveal to them the truth. So that is why he was angry with the friends. They failed to convince Job. They failed to give him a proper answer. Then in chapter 33, he begins to speak to Job. Again, we have a kind of introduction here, verses 1 to 7. And I think he makes four points in his introduction to his words to Job. He says, first of all, I speak from an upright heart and with pure knowledge. And probably when he refers to his upright heart, He means, I'm not speaking out of malice towards you, Job. I'm speaking out of conviction of my heart. I'm speaking as as far as I understand it and know it, the truth. I have knowledge here, pure knowledge, he calls it. And I intend to utter that knowledge, but I intend also, as I utter that knowledge, to speak uprightly to speak the truth uprightly. The Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. That I think this is the same kind of claim he made in chapter 32 when he was talking to the friends and, and said, I too have some understanding in this matter. 
He's not, again, I think he's not claiming inspiration. If you can answer me, he says to Job, if you can answer me, set your words in order before me, take your stand, I'll listen to you. And he probably says that because Job is at this point persuaded that no one wants to listen to him. His friends certainly haven't been willing to believe anything he says. Truly, I am as your spokesman before God. I also have been formed out of clay. Uh, he, he means, I think, this, that you don't need to be afraid of me, Job. No fear of me will terrify you, nor will my hand be heavy on you. You were afraid of God. And you complained more than once that God was so mighty and so powerful that uh, terror of him would prevent you from speaking coherently and presenting your case carefully and, and coherently before him. But you don't have to have that kind of fear with me. I'm, I'm a man like you. I'm toward God the same way that you are toward God. The word spokesman perhaps doesn't really belong there. I'm made of clay just like you are. We're, we're on equal footing here before God and we can have a, a conversation between equals. This isn't a contention between one who is very mighty and one who is very weak. It's a contention, if, it, if it's going to be a contention between equals and therefore you can speak boldly and well to me. In verses 8 to 11, he summarizes Job's speeches. And it's very interesting that Job takes all those speeches of Job from chapter 3 all the way to chapter 31. How many speeches did Job make in that time? More than a dozen speeches. And he summarizes those speeches in four verses. And he says, really, Job, you've made two points. You said, I'm innocent. I am pure without transgression. Verse 9, I am innocent and there is no iniquity in me. That was the first point you made. And the second point you made was, yet God finds occasions against, against me. God counts me as an enemy. Some translate that first line of verse 10 as, yet he finds pretexts against me. Perhaps that's a bit too strong a translation, but it conveys the idea, nevertheless, that uh, God has uh, not done, acted justly toward Job. That was basically Job's complaint, right? He has taken away my justice, he has wronged me, and so on. He finds occasions against me. He's taken every possible opportunity to afflict me. He's made me disgraced by putting my feet in the stocks, and he spies on me. He watches all my paths. So he basically he's saying, you've said two things, Job. I'm innocent. God treats me as an enemy. And I think that's a pretty fair summary of what Job had said. And then, in verse 12, he gets to the substance of his speech, and he rebukes Job. Look, in this you are not righteous. That's the thrust of the rest of this chapter, in you are not righteous. 
That is, you are not righteous in saying he counts me as his enemy. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. This is the fundamental fact that you need to understand. God is greater than man. Why do you contend with him? It's not your place to condemn, contend with him, for he does not give an accounting of any of his words. Now, some of the translations, you can look at the English Standard Version, for example, translate that this way, why do you contend against him, saying, he will answer none of man's words? Why do you contend against him, saying, he does not answer any of man's words. So they change the meaning of the verse slightly by the, the way they translate it. And, uh, probably both translations are grammatically possible here. Uh, but the, the point is, no matter what, God is greater than man. And either that means that he does not give an accounting of any of his words, or if it's an accusation of Job against God that he doesn't answer any of man's words, it still means, well, you've contended with him and yet you've said he doesn't give an accounting to me, he won't answer me. And then he goes on in verses 14 and following to say, but God does speak. I think that's what he's saying then for the next, um, uh, for the rest of the chapter, really, almost. He's saying, God does speak. God may speak in one way or in another, yet man does not perceive it. So God speaks. He does speak. You've said that he does not speak, but God does speak. It's just simply that man doesn't always perceive it. He doesn't hear it, or he doesn't want to listen to it, or he misinterprets it, or whatever it may be. God speaks, and then in the following verses, here are some ways that he speaks. First of all, in verses 15 to 18, he speaks in dreams, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls upon men while slumbering on their beds. Then he opens the ears of men, and seals their instruction. So he's, Eli is saying to Job, yes, God speaks. He speaks in dreams and visions while men are asleep. And he may well be referring there to that word of Elihu way back at the beginning in Elihu's first speech when he had that very strange vision or recounted a, a very strange vision that he had had and then heard the voice of God speaking to him. And he says, God's speech to man has a purpose, too, when he comes in these dreams and visions. He opens the ears of men and seals their instruction in order to turn man from his deed and conceal pride from man. He keeps back his soul from the pit and his life from perishing by the sword. So God speaks, and his purpose is to prevent man from falling into sin and from destroying himself by his sin. He keeps his soul from the pit by his words. This is 
how God speaks and why he speaks then. So don't say that God doesn't speak. He does. And in verses 19 and following, he suggests another way in which God speaks. This comes, by the way, from Christopher Ashe's commentary on Job. And he speaks not only with dreams and visions, but he also speaks, verses 19 and following, in chastening. Man is also chastened with pain on his bed and with strong pain in many of his bones, so that his life abhors bread and his soul succulent food. His flesh wastes away from sight and his bones stick out, which once were not seen. Yes, his soul draws near the pit and his life to the executioners. You can't help but think, well, this is what happened with Job. And Elihu is saying, in effect, to Job, God has been speaking to you. He doesn't say God is accusing you of sin. He just simply says God has been speaking to you. You complain that God won't answer you. You complain that God is silent, that he he doesn't hear you, and that he's hidden from man. Well, yes, he's hidden to a certain degree from man, but don't say that he's silent, that he doesn't speak. He speaks even in his chastening. He sends his messengers, therefore. If there is a messenger for him, verse 23, a mediator, one among a thousand, to show man his uprightness, that is, God's uprightness, then he is gracious to him and says, deliver him from going down to the pit. So he sends his messenger, and this messenger comes with this word from God, or this uh, task from God, deliver him, that is, the man, from going down to the pit, I have found the ransom. I think that's a very striking statement by Elihu. It shows he has knowledge of the blood of atonement and of the power of God to save from sin and God's grace through his promises and that blood of atonement. There's a mediator for man and there's a messenger who brings that a message of the mediator to man. Listen to him, Elihu says. And you will find then, in listening to this messenger from God, that your flesh will be young like a child's. You shall return to the days of your youth. Although he speaks in the third person here. He shall pray to God and he will delight in him. He shall see his face with joy for he restores to man his righteousness. Then he looks at man, men and says, I have sinned. That is the man to whom this message comes. Looks at men and says, I have sinned and perverted what was right. And it did not profit me. And here again is God's purpose in bringing this message of the mediator to him. He will redeem his soul from going down to the pit and his life shall see the light. So Elihu talks about the work of salvation, the work of grace to Job. And he says, God speaks. He speaks in dreams and visions. He speaks also in chastenings. And his purpose in all these chastenings is a gracious and saving purpose. And you, therefore, Job, should not contend with God in these things. See, he doesn't accuse Job of sin like the friends did. 
But he's warning Job against contending with God because he silences the voice of God by his contentions. And Elihu's saying to Job, listen to the voice of God instead. He doesn't say that God will explain everything that he's doing to Job. But he does say God speaks, and when God speaks, he speaks graciously with the purpose of salvation. Hear him then. Don't be so quick to conclude that he is silent. He may be speaking to you of his saving work, even in the affliction he has brought on you. I want to read you a couple of paragraphs from the a couple of commentaries here about this. First of all, from Christopher Ash, He says about this passage, Unlike the comforters, Elihu is not accusing Job of concealing his sins, nor does he read Job's sufferings as evidence of Job's sins. But he says that Job is wrong to accuse God of not speaking. This accusation has come from Job because of his sufferings, And yet, Elihu says, it may be precisely these sufferings that are the voice of God to him. I I may think that because I am suffering, God is not speaking to me, but he is, and my sufferings may be his voice. And his purpose in my sufferings is gracious. It is that I may be rescued from death and restored to life. And then also in the Bible commentary of which F.F. Bruce is the editor. He says this in his commentary on the passage. Job has consistently maintained that God has denied him justice by refusing to defend his integrity and that God's treatment of him has been that of an enemy rather than that of a partial and impartial judge. In this, Elihu intends to show that Job is not right not by arguing, as the friends have, that Job is a sinner, but by showing that God sends suffering for other purposes, notably to warn man from committing sins in the future. In this way, Elihu hopes to be able to show that both God's justice and Job's integrity can be maintained. I think that's the point that Elihu is making here. But that it's very important that he asks that question at the beginning, why do you contend with him? And says to Job, in this you are not righteous. Basically what he's saying to Job is you have been so passionate about defending your own righteousness that you have forgotten that God can have purposes in your suffering of which you have taken no account. You have failed to hear the voice of God because you have been so passionate in your own defense. And that brings us then back to, oh, by the way, he concludes his speech to Job then in verses 31 to 33 by calling upon Job to listen. Give ear, Job, listen to me. Hold your peace and I will speak. If you have anything to say, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify you. Notice his compassion for Job. He's ready to listen. If not, listen to me and hold your peace, 
I will teach you wisdom. So let's go back then to the beginning of chapter 32, where we read about his wrath against Job. His wrath was aroused against Job because he justified himself rather than God. There Elihu has gotten hold of the truth, I think. It's very interesting that in verse 1, the scriptures explain to us why the friends stopped answering. They ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. That is, they had accused Job of sin. Job's answer to them was, no, my suffering cannot be explained because of sin. I'm righteous. And they said, oh, Job is righteous in his own eyes. There's no way we're going to be able to break through that proud conviction of Job, even though we know he's not. And so we cease to answer him. But Elihu's assessment of Job is different. I think his... His assessment of Job is very, um, uh, that difference is a very important difference. His wrath was aroused against him because he justified himself rather than God. Now Elihu is uh, therefore assessing Job too, and he's saying, yes, Job is righteous in his own eyes. But notice that he doesn't say, therefore I won't answer him. Nor does he say Job is wrong in saying, I'm righteous. But he says Job is wrong because he justifies himself rather than God. Now, so the friends thought that they could explain Job's suffering. God is just. Job must have sinned. God would never do this kind of thing to an innocent man. And Job hotly and vigorously defended his own righteousness and said, the ways of God are not so easy to understand as you make out. God's ways are mysterious. But then Job went beyond that, simply defending his own righteousness, and he says, God has wronged me. God has denied me justice. And Elihu is saying to Job, you should not do that. In a sense, he's saying to Job, it shouldn't matter to you whether you are righteous or not. What should matter to you is that God is righteous. That's the key to Elihu's understanding. Job has been passionate in his self-defense. He has been so passionate in his self-defense that he has begun to accuse God of wrong. Now he's been misled in that by the accusations of his friends. We we would probably feel the same way as Job. They're bringing all these false accusations against him. They're They're threatening him with the judgment of God and with hell because of his sins. And they're insistent on this in spite of the fact that Job is uh, rationally and carefully defending himself. So Job's been misled into this passionate defense of himself, but he's gone so far as to say, God has wronged me. And Elihu says, wait a minute, Job. 
You should not be justifying yourself at the expense of justifying God. You've got your priorities wrong. You think it's more important to defend your own righteousness than to defend the righteousness of God to you in your suffering. And you see how he, he's saying, Job, you may not have sinned. There, I'm willing to believe that this suffering is not to be explained by sin. But you have sinned since the suffering came. Sin did not cause the suffering, but suffering has caused sin in you. You need to defend the righteousness of God more than you defend your own righteousness. That's where Job has gone wrong. And Elihu's very right and very wise in that. And this is the point that he makes to Job in detail then in chapters 35, 36, and 37. And this is the, the argument he makes to Job. Look, Job, don't contend with the righteousness of God. Don't say, God has wronged me. God has taken away my justice. God is righteous. He's much more righteous than you are. Yes, I can believe that you are a man of integrity, that you have not sinned. But don't say that God has wronged you because you have not sinned and he has afflicted you. And in this way, then, Elihu prepares, I think, the way for God to speak and really to make the same point to Job that Elihu makes. God, too, says basically to Job, you justify yourself rather than God. It's not that you're righteous in your own eyes. No, it's that you justify yourself rather than God. And that's a very important point for any suffering human being. When we are inclined to ask why, why do you do this, God? Then the answer must never be, God has taken away my justice. We must justify God in this affliction, infliction of pain and suffering in our lives. And this is something that's very important also in speaking to unbelievers who object to the existence of God by saying a good God would never do such things. Either God is a monster or God doesn't exist. And the answer to them is you must justify God rather than yourself. God is righteous in all he does. And no one should question it. Who are you to reply against God? May God bless us with his word.